Okay, if you, <laughs> I was not on TV, Vicky. You did. <laughs> Maybe you did see me. I don't know. <laughs> if you are here this morning and you were on Franklin Street last night, you have you earned bonus points. Okay, well done. All right. Y'all, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 this morning, and as you can already sense today, as as the worship team was leading us uh, through today, um, and you you heard this referenced multiple times, um, we are turning in our journey towards the cross. Uh, Joel set us up with this at the beginning, with this call to worship. We're orienting ourselves around uh, this move towards the cross. And as we walk through this worship experience together, uh, it is all we're, we're we are experiencing this together. This turn that is happening uh, as we begin our journey with Jesus towards Jerusalem, towards our redemption, towards his death on the cross. Luke chapter nine. Uh, we're going to start this morning at verse 18. And uh, the, we're going to actually cover three stories, three frames, three windows uh, that that are significant enough on their own that we should give an entire sermon to each one of them. OK, and we've done that in the past. We can help you find that if you want to. OK, uh, but scholars across the board uh, agree that these three are all intentionally building together these three. Uh, right down the middle of this marks the entire turning point of this book. The whole gospel of Luke turns on these three passages that we're going, going to be in together. In the three synoptic gospels, we've talked about that before. Anybody remember what the synoptic, what are the three synoptic gospels? Yep, exactly. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, Mark is is likely the first of the Gospels to be written. Most scholars agree on that. And Luke and Matthew both intentionally lean heavily on that, as well as adding uh, their own perspectives and adding their own stories to that as well. There's so much overlap between those three that they get referred to as the synoptic Gospels, which means what? What does that word mean? Synoptic? Same eye, exactly. Thank you, Vicky. Same eye, same view, same perspective. Okay, and so in each of the three synoptic gospels, these three frames get put together. Okay, you can find in, in as you're reading through the gospels, you'll find a familiar story that seems to be in a different place in the story, and there's reasons for that. We can talk through that together if you have questions about that. But for these three stories. Each of the synoptic gospels intentionally put them back to back, progressing together and showing this sense of turning point as Jesus begins to make his way towards Jerusalem and make his way to the cross. As Justin is making his way up here for something. Carrying. Oh, are we okay. Awesome. Give it up for Justin Simmons. All right so much for how hard you guys work and um so appreciative and this is for the people who are live streaming at home shout out to the live stream folks yeah all right here we go 
So that's where we are today, all right? So let's start together uh, here in Luke 9, and uh, we're going to start with verse 18. And you'll see uh, how these three fit together, uh, and you'll see these three uh, separate frames, separate windows, uh, yet they move together here. Okay, here we go. Uh, Verse 18. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, I love that. Jesus is praying in private. Our relationship with God is a very personal thing. It's a deeply personal thing. No one else can make the decision for you to become a follower of Jesus. And yet from the beginning, it's always been a communal experience as well. And so I love that it says Jesus was in private praying, and yet his disciples were with him. There's this overlap of that personal and communal happening at once. His disciples were with them and he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Messiah of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up the cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. Again, Peter, John, and James, disciples, And yet they are often referred to as Jesus' inner circle, these three. And sometimes uh, Peter's brother Andrew gets added in there as well. But always these three considered to be Jesus' inner circle. And so you see this communal experience that he has with his disciples. And yet there's even a deeper level there that he goes into relationship with these uh, of his inner circle. Uh, That's part of the design around the bands, our discipleship bands. And uh, we can talk about that if you want to as well. And so we see that modeled by Jesus here. So he took these three, Peter, John, and James with him, and he went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment 
at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but then, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Parentheses, he did not know what he was saying. Probably that, that's, that kind of sticks with Peter, all right? While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. This, then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. Jesus, as we step into your word today, and we find ourselves in this story that you are writing as the author, and yet you are at the very center of it, the lead role. We ask that you would pull back the curtain for us, like you did in this transfiguration moment, Help us to see you in a new way. Help us to see and experience a new depth. What is new to us and yet what is reality? The grounding reality of all things of the universe itself. Help us to see you. That's what we're asking for today. See your name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we move uh, through this passage together, um, a, a few things. Again, uh, this marks a break point in the entire Gospel of Luke. We've talked about this before, uh, and we even use that overarching language uh, for Luke. of It's this story on the way. Now, this is a travel narrative. Uh, the Gospel of Luke also mirrored in the book of Acts. Luke is also the author of the book of Acts. And in both of these uh works, you can see that they are a travel narrative. The one follows Jesus to Jerusalem for his crucifixion on the cross and then his resurrection from the dead. And then the book of Acts follows what happens in and the ramifications of that after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and how the church goes starts in Jerusalem, but then goes to the ends of the earth from there. And so both of these are a travel narrative. And so you can see that as this turns here and the rest of the book is dedicated uh, to Jesus's journey towards the cross, towards Jerusalem. Um, we are today at the first Sunday of Lent, which is uh, a season in the liturgical church calendar, in the global church and ancient church calendar, where Christians around the world mark this season. It's 40 days uh, that lead up to Easter and the celebration of Easter. And so what we do is we intentionally walk with Jesus. We make this turn here at the beginning of Lent. We begin to put our focus now on the cross and we intentionally move with Jesus and his disciples towards Jerusalem, towards this crucifixion moment. That's why Lent is marked uh, often and celebrated often by fasting, because it's this time in which 
We recognize that the deepest cravings that we have are only satisfied in God himself. Like St. Augustine said, uh, my heart was restless until it found its rest in you. And we recognize that here in this season of Lent. And so often people will fast. Uh, Historically, many have fasted from food. Uh, recognizing just that primal need and craving represented in food uh, and this statement of saying, I'm going to fast from this particular kind of food or in this particular kind of way to acknowledge that my absolute deepest need is God himself, even deeper than my most primal cravings and needs. Now, I also want to acknowledge uh, that that can be Um, a harmful thing and that that can be harmful language uh, if we aren't careful in the way that we talk about that. And um, so we need to recognize that that relationship uh, that people have with food. And so uh, if fasting from food is not what is um, right for you, uh, then we completely support you in that, completely encourage you uh, to ask the Holy Spirit to lead you into something that you can fast from. And so the point of this uh, is not just denial. The point is focus. And it's not the kind of focus of saying, I'm going to do this to prove to God how much I love him so that he will focus his attention on me. It's actually the opposite. Instead, it's a way of us being able to intentionally focus our attention on him. You cannot earn any more of his love than what you already have. He already loves you with his whole self. That's what this entire journey to the cross is about and proves and emphasizes. So it's not about that. It's not a hunger strike to try to get God's attention. You have his attention. You're his beloved child and he loves you. It's about keeping our focus and attention on him. So we intentionally walk with him in this journey towards the cross. And so uh, what we have here, uh, many of you have seen this before. All right. But it's been a couple of years, I think, since we've come back to this. Uh, But I want to remind us uh, of this cycle that we follow and this rhythm that we follow uh, as a church, as we're rooting ourselves in scripture and at the same time, tying ourselves to time in the liturgical church calendar. And the outline of this calendar gives us a way of following the full scope of the scripture story. And so we have these two things uh, layered on top of each other and in conversation with each other. So the Christian year begins at Advent. That's actually the dawn of the Christian year, the first season of the Christian year. And it's this time of anticipating the arrival of Jesus at Christmas. And so we move from Advent to Christmas. And then we celebrate the arrival of Jesus at Christmas. We move into Christmas tide, the 12 days of Christmas, and then the day uh, of Epiphany, uh, this sense of, of the revealing and seeing the reality of who Jesus is. Uh, after Epiphany, we move towards this season of Lent. And so you are here today. Okay, there we go. And from Lent, we move through this season of fasting. A season through the desert, so to speak, like Jesus, modeled after Jesus' 40 days of fasting in the desert until we get to the ultimate tragedy of all of humanity, what we are going to call the catastrophe of love. This moment of heartbreaking reality 
that God himself is murdered. That God who gives himself to us in love is put to death on the cross in the most shameful kind of death imaginable at that time. Crushed by the Roman Empire. Colluding with the religious elite of the day. Absolutely tragic. And yet, that is not the end of the story. And Good Friday then gives way to Holy Saturday, which is this time of pausing and this time of sitting in the silence of the reality that God is dead, which then explodes into the unbelievable joy of Easter Sunday morning, the realization that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. Jesus the King has conquered sin through his death on the cross and has conquered even death through his resurrection from the dead. From Easter then, we move through this time called Easter Eastertide. Uh, from Easter to Pentecost is a 40-day uh, celebration. Also in here we have the Day of Ascension. There's 40 days between Easter and the Day of Ascension when Jesus ascends back to heaven. And then the Day of Pentecost, 50 days after Easter when the Holy Spirit is poured out and the church is born. And then we have this time here uh, that leads us back around again. To Advent. And so you see this cycle and this rhythm that we follow year after year. And as we follow this, it moves us through the story of Jesus. And so intentionally during this time, we often focus ourselves on the Old Testament so that we're getting that full scope of the story, rooting ourselves in the whole story as we're moving towards this anticipation of the arrival of Jesus at Christmas from his birth every year. We spend the time after Epiphany living in the Gospels. We live in the Gospels during this time. We walk with Jesus through his life from Lent, follow all the way to Good Friday. That's an intentional move. So that by the time that we get to Good Friday, we have walked this journey with our friend. We have walked this journey with our teacher that we love deeply. We have walked this journey with our Savior. And so as he lays down his life for us on Good Friday, it's not just a, a rut that we're in. It's something that we experience deeply because we've been moving with him through his life all the way to the point of his death. And of course, the joy of Easter. And so this is an intentional rhythm that we follow. Again, we use the word rhythm uh, because this could often feel like a rut. Okay. If you just feel like you're stuck in this cycle over and over and over again, this doesn't really look like growth, okay? It looks like just repeating itself and getting stuck in this kind of lifeless uh, ritual that you just follow over and over again. But that's not how we see it. And we intentionally try to engage with this in a way that instead of seeing it as a rut, it's a rhythm. And we use the image of the inside of a tree, okay? We use the image of a tree all throughout scripture, the tree is an important image of what it means to be rooted and living in God, of finding our lives in God. And so we look to Psalm 1, and it talks about this tree that is rooted and planted by streams of water, that a tree that bears fruit in season. And we look at Isaiah 61 and this prophecy of becoming a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Oaks of righteousness, it says in Isaiah 61. So we love that tree imagery. And in this, 
we see that coming into play again. So think about the rings of a tree. This isn't just a rut that we're stuck in, but if you think about the rings of a tree, you see the same pattern over and over and over again, and you can tell the life, you can trace the life of the tree by following that pattern, repeating itself. And each year it's growing out, out, out. And there's this sense that the rings are going wider every year as the roots are going deeper and as the reach of the tree continues to go further. And so that's the model that we follow as we're walking through Scripture together. Uh, We want to be intentional about being rooted in Scripture. And so you are here. You have been here before. You will be here again. And each time as you go through these seasons, take a mark of where you are. Look back at the rings of the tree of your own life. Where were you last Lent? Next year, look back again. Where was I? Where am I in this journey? It's not a straight line. Nobody's journey of faith is ever a straight line. It's never just up and to the right. Not even the life of Jesus is that, as we're getting ready to talk about in just a moment, okay? It's this moving landscape, but you can look back and you can see the ways in which he has cultivated growth in your life, the ways in which there are seasons where you are bearing fruit, the ways in which there are seasons when it seems like there is nothing at all growing on the branches. And we see that all around us in the world. The whole world is giving us encouragement in those seasons. We are coming out of one of those seasons right now. Walking across campus the last couple of weeks I, I, I takes my breath away. The blooming trees, it's absolutely beautiful. And they did not look like that four weeks ago. They looked dead. They looked empty. And you wonder, are they ever going to bloom again? Yes, in season. In season. So this teaches us to root ourselves, to live in patience and to allow the Holy Spirit to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in us as we are rooted in the Father, as we're abiding in Jesus, the true vine, and we're bearing fruit through his life. So this is where we are, and you can see that the story is taking a downward turn. Another reason that we are referring to this as the catastrophe of love is because this word catastrophe is actually made up of two uh, Greek words, Uh, That mean down and turn. And that is where we are in the story. We are making the downward turn as we begin to journey with Jesus towards the cross. This begins, uh, this section here begins with Jesus asking this question of who do the crowds say that I am? And they begin to give these answers. Some think that you're John the Baptist, okay? Uh, and and Jesus' cousin who we talked about before and who ends up being put to death because of his witness for Jesus. And so some think that you're him. And they're really freaked out about that possibility, okay? Some think that you're Elijah who has been dead for centuries or some other prophet that has come back from the dead. In other words, there is some kind of ancient power and wisdom that people are seeing in you. You look like the echoes of the story that God has been telling through the history of his people. And it looks like it's playing itself out over again. That's who they think that you are. Jesus turns that 
corner then with them and says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and speaks on behalf of the group. And he gives this powerful, inspired, Holy Spirit inspired, revealed by the Father kind of answer. And he answers back, you are the Messiah, the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Christ. This word Messiah and the word Christ, they actually mean the same thing. Messiah comes from the Hebrew root for the word. Uh, Christ comes from the Greek root from the word, but they mean the same thing. They both mean anointed one. And so they're both used to describe this one that had been prophesied and promised that God would send as his anointed king, as his anointed savior to deliver, to rescue his people, and then to reign with the heart of God over God's people. And so they had been longing for the arrival of the Messiah as at this point in time, they're living under the oppressive reign of the Roman empire. They are longing for the Messiah to come. And Peter says what everyone else is hoping, maybe not thinking, maybe not articulating out loud or even in their minds yet, but what they are hoping. You are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the anointed one, that one in whom these two categories collide of savior and deliverer and king who will rule with justice, with the heart of God the one who will establish the kingdom of God again on earth. And so he makes this confession. Uh, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't say it in this passage, uh, but then there's the, um, yep, exactly. I'm just double checking. <laughs> I had that moment of doubt for a second there, but it doesn't say it in this passage, uh, but in the other two synoptic gospels, uh, you have this moment uh, where Jesus says to Peter, this is revealed to you by God. This doesn't even come from yourself. You are right in this. And upon this confession, I will build my church. Upon this confession, I will build my church. And he still is doing that today. He continues to do that. Build it on this confession that he is the Christ. That's why at our baptism uh, services that we have down at Morgan Creek. We love that. And we've got another one coming up here later in the spring. So if you're interested in baptism and you want to take that public step of making this public acknowledgement and declaration that Jesus is your Messiah, your Savior, your King, uh, then we want to celebrate that with you in baptism. But as a person gets baptized in this church, they make that confession again. We ask people to repeat that confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Savior, and my king, because all of that is packed here into this confession that Peter makes. And Jesus says he'll build his church on the rock of that confession. And so if you are at a place in your journey where you are ready to do that, and maybe even in this moment, you're feeling that provoking to say yes to that, to say yes to the invitation of Jesus to come and to follow him as a disciple, to experience what it means to be for him to be your Messiah, your Savior your king, then please come talk to us so we can celebrate that with you. So as Jesus goes on, it makes this turn where we get this high point of this confession that yes, he is the Messiah. Yes, he is the Christ, the one that they've been waiting for, but he's not coming in the way that they expected. 
and the story is going to take a turn that they have not been expecting. And so he moves there from the acknowledgement and the revelation that, yes, I am the Christ to this shocking, confusing, scandalizing statement by saying, I am on a journey towards my death. He says the son of man will be handed over and will be put to death. And after three days will be raised again. This causes shock and confusion for the disciples because this is not how they imagined. For all of their hoping in the Messiah, they never imagined this. They saw their Messiah as a conquering king in the line of David, not one who was going to be crushed and put to death. Jesus then goes on to use cross imagery. And at this point, the cross had no religious significance to it whatsoever. It only meant an instrument of death used by the Roman Empire, designed to be excruciating in the way that they carried out death and designed to strike fear and terror in the hearts of anyone who thought even for a moment about resisting the Roman Empire. And Jesus pulls cross language into this. Confusing, shocking, scandalizing for Jesus to do this. It's interesting. One of the things that Jesus repeatedly does in his ministry when he's referring to himself is he uses this designation of son of man. Son of man. Has anybody else ever been confused by that language before? Exactly. Okay, we can dig into when he says Messiah, when he says Christ, we get that. Son of God, we get that. I mean, we can't get our minds around that, but we are trying to get that. But son of man, there's this odd kind of obscurity to it. And there's this odd kind of fog and cloud around that language. What does it mean? Some have tried to say, well, it's it's kind of like this pairing of son of God and son of man. He's fully human, fully God. That's not what Jesus is getting at when he's saying this. Jesus is intentionally reaching back into the scriptural imagination of the people of Israel. And he's reaching back specifically to the prophet Daniel and to a prophecy that Daniel makes in Daniel chapter 7. And so when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, it sets off this memory for people and they make this connection back to this odd and obscure vision that Daniel has centuries before in captivity in Babylon. And so here's what he has to say. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Here is the prophecy that Daniel makes. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. We just sang that today. All right. We sang about Jesus fulfilling this prophecy today. Like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Ancient of days being a reference to God himself. And so he sees this figure referred to as a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. 
and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So in the same way in our language, if I sing the beginning, I will not sing to you, but if I sing the beginning of a, of a line of a song that you're familiar with, or if I say a line from a song and it starts, the song starts to play in your mind, all right? Like, we don't talk about Bruno. Sorry about that. I am so sorry, okay? That has been locked in my head for like three months and I can't escape it. And my kids will bring it back. Exactly, it's back. And now it's in yours too, all right? So the lines start to flow out, right? And you start to connect and you start to piece it together. Same thing with the scriptural imagination of the people of Israel. They were so rooted in this that even this language of son of man, it sparks this connection and this memory. Is this who you are trying to claim that you are? Some people will say that when Jesus uses the son of man, he's kind of pulling back a little bit from the son of God language. Like I'm not going as far as saying son of God. I'm going to use son of man. No, look at what it says. Look at what it says. Glory, sovereign power, all nations bowing and worshiping him, coming on the clouds of glory. His kingdom will never end. What a claim that Jesus is making. And it completely aligns with this statement of Messiah and Christ. So he pulls this out and he is unpacking this even more for them and filling out this imagery even more. This is who I am. You are absolutely on the right track. Those who are chasing ghosts of former prophets, they're going down the wrong path. You are on the right track. I am indeed the Messiah. I am the Son of Man. I have come in glory, splendor. All authority will be given to me. All nations will worship me. My kingdom will never end. What a claim. What a scandalous claim that Jesus is making. This doesn't back away at all. In fact, it digs the heels in to the Christ and Messiah imagery around Jesus. Absolutely powerful. Jesus continues with the scandal of this as he begins to say, the cross isn't only for me, but I'm inviting anyone who follows after me. You must realize and you must embrace the reality of the cross. You must take up your cross and follow me. You must be willing to lay down your own life and take up the life that I will win for you. That's the invitation of discipleship. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. He is kind and he is gracious and he is honest. And so right up front, he tells us, this story is taking a downward turn. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to experience this as well. It means you must embrace the cross. Again, language that had no religious significance at this point in time. But because of what Jesus accomplishes on the cross, now around the world, this symbol, the symbol of a cross, no longer uh, is most associated with the execution technique of the Roman Empire, but instead it is, the, it is most associated immediately with hope and redemption 
and sacrificial love because of what Jesus does. It's like St. Athanasius that we quoted last week. We were in this quote last week who's talking about this counterintuitive way of Jesus that leads to life through death. It makes no sense apart from Jesus getting his hands on it. He says this, a marvelous and mighty paradox has thus occurred for the death which they thought to inflict on him as dishonor and disgrace has become the glorious moment, monument to death's defeat. The glory, and it still stands as that today. Everywhere you see it, it means redemption and hope. It means sacrificial love. It means the glorious monument to death's defeat. The scandal and the shame of the cross have become the glory and the grace of Jesus. And he's inviting us into that. He asks you to embrace what he has done. And in the same way to lay down your life surrendered to him. And just like he picked up his own life and resurrection power, he will pick up your life and resurrection power. And as you die to yourself, you are made new in him, his life in you. The surrendered picked back up in resurrection power as we move then to this next section. So we've got these two moments. We've got the confession of Peter. We've got this challenge about the cross. Take up your cross. And now we get this third frame here that we've been talking about. And it's this moment of the transfiguration is the language that gets used. When the disciples see Jesus revealed for who he is, it says that his face and his clothes are shining as bright as lightning. The glory is shining through. The glory of God is shining through on him. And as if that wasn't enough for them to add evidence to what is happening in this moment of Jesus revealed in his glory, on each side of him, it says, are these two significant figures from Israel's history. Again, the scriptural imagination is on fire right now for these people as they're seeing this. They see Moses and Elijah dead for centuries, yet somehow standing with Jesus, talking with Jesus about what is coming, about his journey to the cross, that we are beginning with him here at this moment. This is an incredible scene for so many reasons, and we're going to try to unpack quickly here a few of the things. For one, Moses and Elijah represent the fullness of the story of Scripture. There's a phrase that people would use in Jesus's day to refer to the whole uh, scripture, right? The whole counsel of God, the whole wisdom of God, the story of God and his relationship with his people. So they would refer to the Holy Scriptures as the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. These two bracketing kind of images that hold the whole story together. And so in shorthand, they would often say this, the law and the prophets. The law, Jesus says this himself. Sum up all of the law and the prophets with this command, okay? So that's the language that's used. And in this moment, they see the person who represents the law, Moses, the person that God gives the law to, and they see Elijah recognized as the chief of the prophets, the one who often stands as a representation for all of the other prophets. And so Jesus is bracketed in this moment by the law and the prophets. And you get this sense here 
that that of course Jesus is the one who is the most elevated in glory and the law and the prophets are leaning into him are pointing to him and are saying to us that the whole story has been pointing to Jesus the whole story has been about him and the whole story gets fulfilled in him as he gets revealed for the reality of who he really is Moses and Elijah both uh, fasted for 40 days, just like Jesus, uh, as we're entering into this season of Lent. Moses and Elijah both had incredible meetings with God on a mountaintop. And here we are again, up on a mountain, and they're having this meeting with Jesus. It's almost like, I'm not, I'm not saying this, it's almost like we're looking back into time and we're catching a, a glimpse of what it was like for Elijah when he was on the mountain experiencing the presence of God. It's like we're looking back in time and catching this glimpse of what it was like for Moses when he's on the mountain experiencing the glorious presence of God. So much so that when when Moses comes down the mountain, his face is shining from the glory that he experienced. And it's like we're getting a window into that moment as Jesus, God himself, the very presence of God in flesh and blood, and in this moment in full glory is meeting with them again. We see the whole story coming into view here in this moment. It says that they're talking to him about his departure. And the Greek word that gets used there is the same word that gets translated as exodus. So we get this moment again. Moses, who is talking to him about his exodus that is coming who is talking to him about a Passover that is coming, who is talking to him about the parting of what was certain death, parting open so that the people could pass through in life, who is talking about this journey out of enslavement and into freedom and promise. So we see all of this happening here. And it says that the disciples became fully awake. That they became full. That'll wake you up. That one will wake you up. That they became fully awake. They became aware. They began to see. Their eyes were opened by the light. And they began to see the new dawn that was breaking out in this reality of Jesus. Peter makes a statement again. Same statement that all of us would have made if we had been there. And he says, Jesus, this is good for us to be here. Can we stay? Can we stay in this moment? Everything that's built up to this, can we stay? Let's just build three shelters here. We'll build one for you. We'll build one for Moses. We'll build one for Elijah. Let's keep this thing rolling. Let's hold on to this moment and stay right here. And Jesus says, it is good for us to be here, but it is not good for us to stay here because the mission is rolling on and the mission is not up on the mountain. The mission is about to take a downward turn and we are going to make our way down the mountain and into the deepest part of the valley of death. 
where we will all experience the redemption of the world. Because Jesus did not allow the disciples to stay in that moment. Lent leads us down the mountain and toward the cross. We are beginning, quite literally, they began the downward turn. The downward journey down the mountain towards the deepest dark valley, the valley of death. And we are walking with them through this season of Lent as we are making our way towards the cross. The catastrophe, the downward turn has been set in motion. Twelve different times through the Gospel of Luke, a mountain gets mentioned. As we've said before, always look at the setting of a story. When you're studying Scripture and you're trying to understand what it means, let Scripture be the leading commentary on Scripture. When you see a setting, ask yourself what this means. A setting is like another character in the story. It doesn't have any dialogue, but it has so much to say to us about what is happening in this moment. And that's true. Anytime you see a mountain in Scripture, take pull back and get that full picture. And we see this mountain moment, as we've talked about with Elijah and Moses, the echoes there. We see this 12 different times referenced in the Gospel of Luke. And it's not just a description of the landscape of Judea and this journey that Jesus is on from Galilee to Jerusalem, but it's a description of the landscape of the kingdom and this discipleship journey with Jesus. Discipleship with Jesus is a travel narrative. And there are mountain moments, and then there are moments when the story takes a downward turn. But the glory is that Jesus is with us every step of the way. He walks with them every step of the way. Moses fades. Elijah disappears as quickly as he arrived in that moment. The glory can't be seen anymore. But Jesus is with them and leading the way. And he's with us every time we sense the story taking a downward turn. As the landscape starts to change from mountain to valley, we know that Jesus is with us and leading the way. It is good for us to be here. It is not good for us to stay here. We keep moving with him. And we'll see the landscape change. And that's a sign that we're staying in step with him. As we stay in motion with him. The last thing here is that there's a voice from the cloud. The voice of the father speaks over. And here's another echo to the Exodus moment of Moses on the mountain as well. As God gives the law to Moses on the mountain. There's this symbolism of the cloud that descends and the glory and the fire that's there and the earthquake and all of that that is happening in that moment. And the the, the booming sense of God speaking as he gives his law. And the law was designed to say, this is what it looks like to be my covenant community in this world. This is what it looks like to be the people of God in this world. And we get an echo of that in this moment as the cloud covers them, envelops them, covers the mountain, and we hear the voice of God echoing what he's already spoken over Jesus at his baptism moment. And once again, he says, this is my son, whom I am well pleased, the chosen one. And then he gives us this direction. Listen to him. 
listen to him. The first time the cloud descends on the mountain for Moses, he gives the law, what it looks like to be the covenant people, what it looks like to be the people of God in the world. And this time, he's pointing us to Jesus. And he says, do you know what it looks like to be my people? Listen to him. Look at him. Follow what he does. Follow what he says. Go where he goes. Live how he is living through you. Follow him. Listen to him. Look like him. That's what it looks like to be my people in this world. His life, his teachings, his living, his doing, and his being. Listen to him and go with him. And they do. They make that turn. The downward turn towards the cross. The catastrophe of love. On the last night that Jesus had with his disciples was another moment with them, not on a mountain, but this time around a table. And he took symbols from that same Exodus story as they were remembering how God had led them out of enslavement and oppression in Egypt and and through the Red Sea towards the promise on this Exodus journey. And Jesus tells them, I am doing that again. But this time it'll be my life that is given. It'll be my body that is broken. It'll be my blood that is spilled out for the forgiveness of sin and for the life of the world. 